Welcome to another episode of Superhumanize, the podcast that dives deep into the realms of optimal health, radical wellness, and longevity. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Today, we venture into sacred territories where ancient wisdom meets modern science and where we will illuminate the mysterious and empowering facets of the divine feminine. Our guest is a modern-day sage, a best-selling author, a pioneer in Ayurvedic medicine, and an explorer of the soul. Katie Silcox. From artificial intelligence research to being a beach bar owner on the coast of Spain to holding a master's degree in Ayurvedic medicine, Katie has had a diverse life to say the least. And all these experiences have transformed her and informed her path as a heart-centered leader and healer. She is the founder of the Shakti School, a premier online certification school for women-centered holistic wellness and a place that serves as a sanctuary and transformative realm where women rediscover and reclaim their innate power. Her new book, Glowworthy, is a beacon for those who seek to navigate the complexity of trauma-informed spirituality. So if you have ever wondered how to balance your bodily systems with ancient wisdom, or how to harmonize your soul amidst all the noise of the modern world, or even how to transcend the limitations that culture and society have perhaps placed upon you, then sit back and absorb the wisdom and the light that is Katie Silcock. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Katie, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I'm really thrilled that we're connecting today. And not only because your mission and your offerings to this world are so incredible, uh, but also because what you put forth in this world resonates with me deeply. From my childhood, I grew up in India, so I was steeped in the Ayurvedic traditions, yoga, during the first four to eight years of my life when I lived in Delhi. And also your work is very women-centric. That's really near and dear to my heart as well. I've been had a big focus on creating community for women to uplift each other, hold space and grow together. So I'm really excited to talk to you and learn from you. And something that's fascinated me about you is that you've had a really diverse journey from artificial intelligence researcher to owning a bar in Spain to obtaining a master's degree in Ayurvedic medicine. So I would like to know how have all of these experiences shaped your current role in Ayurvedic medicine and as an author, someone who creates a global community and in your spiritual path? Yeah, thank you for taking the time to learn about a little bit about me and really starting off group Southern Baptist. I was raised here down in actually down in Tennessee and 
Always loved me some Jesus, always had a heart for bhakti, right? For love and relationship with something bigger than myself. And I'm really grateful for that upbringing. In so many ways, it primed my mind and heart to be open to my my heart being open. Really, that's really what I think the essence of Christianity and a lot of these deep roots of all of our mystical mother traditions all over the globe are really about compassionate broken heart, right? And letting your heart break for humanity. And But as when your listeners know, like there's some shadow side to growing up Southern Baptist. And so I inherited a lot of the dark and light of that tradition. And so I was really hungry to move out of those limiting belief systems that I grew up with and studied artificial intelligence in a on a whim in the sense that I met a German technologist in a bar. I, I went to college in Spain and he was like, we were like back when I used to drink, I'm sober now, but he was like, you are really smart. I want to take you out of this bar and hire you. And it was like a, it was like a Hollywood movie, not knowing what I was doing with my life, working in a bar. I owned the bar, but I knew that it was not a bartender, right? And he, and then literally three weeks later, I was living in Marbella, Spain with this think tank with people from MIT, from all over Europe, really smart technologists and deep thinkers, deep philosophers, deep mathematicians. And they became my teachers. Like I never knew about algorithms and AI and even Buddhism. And so I began to steep myself in technological understanding, philosophical understanding, intellectual understanding. My job description was literally, he said to me in this beautiful German accent, Katie, I want you to be an expert at anything overnight. Like I was his little secret weapon. And he would actually lie and tell people like, she's this and we brought her in because she's that complete lies. And so all this to say, I realized these, I was meeting with people, German royalty, stockbrokers from Chicago, the elite FBI people. And here I am, this little hillbilly from Tennessee. And he trained me to be able to be a chameleon and to be in any situations. He was very much like a very odd father figure for me at the time. That's another story. But why it's important to your question is that I realized that although I loved my dear brothers, they were all men, they were miserable. They had money. They had women. They had every drug you can imagine. They called me the sacrificial virgin because I'd never done drugs or done anything, right? And they weren't happy. And so when I was offered a big raise and a big job augmentation, I quit. Four, four or five years into it. And I moved to India because I had started studying yoga a little bit to try to manage my own anxiety and panic attacks to be to, totally open. And that's where I began to study yoga and Ayurveda. And now here I am with you on the other side of 20 years of being somewhat of a student and very much a student and somewhat of a teacher expert traveled the world as a, quote, expert in Ayurveda and yoga. And I found, oh, there are limitations to this path as well. And so I became very interested in the patriarchal roots of what I was studying, which no problem. I love men. It's not oh bad. But I realized that I'm still not done. And 
I believe sitting in front of you now, I believe people like ourselves are here to up-level, evolve, and really respect, but respectfully evolve these ancient traditions. Because I think that there's this idea that if we go back to these mystical teachings, particularly Westerners believe this, we'll have this perfect journey. And truthfully, I needed to actually abandon yoga and meditation for a while to actually get therapy, (laughs) do the heart work, do the emotion processing, do the looking at my lineage and my family and my upbringing. And now on the other side of that, I see Ayurveda to be this deeper meaning of the word, the study of life, the willingness to sacrifice our ego into the fire of who we could become by learning the way nature works, but also the way our inner nature works. And so now I'm really stoked to study great yogis like Carl Jung and like some of the Christian mystics because I abandoned that Western and Christian upbringing because I thought the East had all the answers. And I could go on and on. I don't even remember your question, but that's where it's landed me now today. And one thing I will say, we created this school called the Shakti School that teaches women in Ayurvedic education in a way that, and I loved all my Ayurveda schools and all my Ayurveda teachers, but there was something missing. And it was that connection to life force. It was that connection to my wildness. It was that connection to energy. It was that connection to my intuition and all the things that make me not just a woman, but a human being. I really feel like I'm a translator of sorts, uh, attempting to take these beautiful ancient methodologies and bring them into the modern light where you can have a Vitamix, you can wear high heels, you can even, oh my God, like maybe eat something that's not perfectly your dosha and still be on the journey. Absolutely. I love your perspective and how you embody all that. And I personally have so much respect and admiration and I find so much inspiration in beings like yourself who have explored, discovered, integrated all kinds of different experiences, ever evolving. I My heart is often filled with sadness. At the same time, I say satnam. However, it still is filled with sadness when I see when I see others who are seemingly in one box and they've been in that box all their lives. So I love this truly immersing yourself in the journey of life, such as you have done. So thank you for sharing that. And you just you mentioned the Shakti school, which it describes itself on the website as a birthing ground for magnetizing, for evolving. And the concept of Shakti in Hinduism embodies the divine feminine energy. And since we started talking about this, how do you feel that recognizing and cultivating this energy empowers can empower modern women to navigate the challenges that we are facing uniquely today? Yeah, it's really bold to call your school the Shakti school, but I'm realizing as I age how bold that was of me as a youngster because it's in indif- you cannot define the word Shakti. It's like love, it's like God. It's but you know it when you feel it and you know it when you're with it and you know it when you see it. Men and women have this, but there's something there are many things about the physiology of many women that innately 
offers us an opportunity to connect with it. What is it? Again, it's in men and women. It's the capacity of the mind, heart, body to be open to the direct and raw animal and spiritual experience of being here right now. It is not just consciousness. It is not just presence, which are really good things to have. But this is where it takes the whole new age scene on its head. It's that we're willing to sit with what is actually here from an animalistic, energetic, physical, raw, embodied experience. There is actually not a transcendence. There's a transmutation, maybe, but it's more a returning, a Mm. downward flow of our awareness. Okay, let me say it a different way for some people. This might land better. Opening the heart in pure receptivity to being willing to feel what's here. The feminine says, this is pure Tantra, right? 101, but it's everywhere. It's in every mystical tradition. If you go into these Hindu temples, you've probably seen them like in Kujarako. They are surrounded by goddesses. They're half women, half animals. There are hundreds of goddesses because there are hundreds of ways that you can experience your emotions, your sensations, your psyche, your dreams, your images, all of these aspects of being human. For example, there's one goddess called she who is never not broken. That's a feeling state. We, mm-hmm. You're shaking your head. We know it. And especially women have this deep connection to a part of us that feels super broken. And then as do all the goddesses, her sister sits right by her side and her name is, they go together, two sides of the same coin, and her name is she who is never broken. And we could go on and on about she who is always a little bit angry and pissed off about her life. And then she who is in total harmony, love and peace, these dual nature of reality and being willing to walk into that duality without attempting to leave it, without needing to transcend it. That is the essence of the feminine. And that's the essence of Tantra, which is the philosophy I've really tried to practice in in this lifetime. So this really touches something deep inside of me, Katie, and I'd like to hear more from you because you also mentioned a few minutes ago when you talked about your path in life and how you got to be in this place where we're sitting together right now, that you were dealing with anxiety and panic attacks. Those are both things that I have experienced frequently myself, anxiety It's always the backdrop of my life. And I have learned with the years to, quote, manage it, whether it was herbs or breathing exercises, yoga, extremely helpful, or other more modern treatment modalities such as ketamine therapy. We actually have a clinic here, my husband and I, in Los Angeles, Santa Monica. We offer ketamine IV. So I do that about once a year. It has massively lowered the anxiety levels, also because it's helped me work through certain things. However, it still is there, very low in the background and panic attacks for those in the audience who have experienced that, that can literally feel, oh my God, I'm about to die. (laughs) So it's not very pleasant. So that being said, and what you mentioned just a minute ago, to truly be 
here? What is here now? How have you come to a place where you can do that? And what tools, what knowledge, what wisdom do you use? Because I know a lot of people, I count myself within those people, have used or are using coping mechanisms that you can, for example, say breathing exercises are very beneficial for you. You could say alcohol is not that beneficial for you, which yes, there's a lot of biochemical reasons and mental reasons that it's not great for you, especially if you use it to escape reality and escape being with the now. So what? how have you gotten to the place where you are in now? This is such a topic near and dear to my heart. And I want to say when I look at you, I'm like, hey, sister, we almost even look a little bit alike. There's a <laughs> sisterhood. I want to acknowledge that. And I want to acknowledge your heart and your mind. And I want to acknowledge your anxiety. And I think there's so much stigma around it. And I'm glad to see that our younger people are speaking about, quote, their mental health, right? That's what they call it. There's a shadow to that where you can become overly identified with it. But all in all, I have this theory that people who have experienced panic attacks are probably healers. They're probably healers. They're sensitive. They are on some, they have, the door is, it's being knocked on. One of my friends, Jamie Cato, he's an author. He says, when you have had panic attacks, you've licked the floor of hell and come out the other side. (laughs) And I I know we could say that for our friends who struggle with depression or any of these issues. And on the contrary, it's not a sign that you're a failure. It's a sign that something inside of you needs to be. In the case of depression, there is something in you or in your life that actually needs to die. For anxiety... And those of us who are get anxiety are typically, according to Ayurveda, more of that fire and air type. We are usually quite successful. We are driven. We are usually have a sensitive and bright intellect. There's no way you couldn't feel anxiety in the world that we're living in right now. But what I've found with myself is that ang- what I label anxiety is actually my resistance to feeling. I used to think it was a anxiety is actually not a feeling. It's the bracing against a feeling you are afraid of having. Mind blowing. That one idea. Because I was like, oh, I'm so emotional. Of course I'm feeling. No, anxiety is the way you're resisting feeling it. So that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yes, you and I could go into, and I'm happy to do this. I have a podcast to go there, get all the free resources. I'll give you tons of free stuff at the end of this, blah, blah, blah. We'll help people. You don't have to sign up for my school. Let me tell you, it's not easy. And there are moments, I'm not going to sit here and say, I may never have a panic attack again. They don't happen for me anymore the way they used to, but I'm a little hummingbird. I'm a little anxious creature. That's how God made me. I'm not a big elephant. I'm a hummingbird. So (laughs) I got to honor that. Now, the irony is when you accept it, you have less of it. But Mm -hmm. here's the other thing about anxiety. Anxiety is a sign that there's something in you that is unfelt. For me, what has helped me immensely, and it's the person I dedicated my whole new book, Glowworthy. <laughs> I dedicated the whole book to this woman named Crystal. She was my trauma embodied, trauma informed therapist, and she still is. I worked with her for four, four and a half years after doing all the yoga, after doing all the meditation. I write about this in the book. 
the Arian, the month that I was on the cover of the Yoga Journal magazine, talk about having your ego splashed upon the world. I I was in the hospital with a panic attack. It was like the worst one I'd ever had. I thought something really bad was wrong with me physically. And the doctor who didn't know me, didn't know who I was, he he did all these tests and the nurse and the doctor came in and they were like, madam, ma'am, madam, that's in India, ma'am, you're as healthy as a horse. There's nothing wrong with you. And then he, I swear to you, he handed me a pamphlet and it said, Try yoga and meditation. <laughs> and oh. I, was, I was like three hours of yoga and meditation and tantric visualizations and mantras. And I had a guru. I was like, that was my whole life was that. And I was having really hardcore PTSD type stuff coming out of my body. Luckily, I got this amazing gal and there are lots of amazing trauma-informed therapists. And through our experiences together, I really realized she is a shaman. Like we're walking into the body every single time we're together, looking at what's going on with the energy, looking at what's going on with the psyche and really learning how to parse, to use a computer language, your past experience that holds trauma from who you actually are, your memories, your sensations, your imagery, all these things that what trauma does is it recapitulates things over and over again. It's samsara, right? Like it's an attempt, karma, it's all Buddhism, right? It's an attempt to repeat the same thing over and over again to have a different outcome. And we get caught in that ludic loop in the brain and can't get out. But we are because we're identifying self with thinking cogitative mind. When we leave cogitating mind and we enter into an experience of our energy, that's hard. That's when things start to the pollution, if you will, starts to become diluted by the energetic experience. And that's really hard to talk about. And that's why I wrote a whole book about how do I get in that energy body in, in a non-woo-woo way, it's you can't just tell people, just get out of your mind and go to your energy. What does that mean? And I think that's why so many people are using certain drugs to, like ketamine, there's been great results. Cer- certain psychedelics done under certain supervisions, there's been incredible results with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then most people aren't doing it that way. <laughs> so that's a long way of saying, if you are struggling with anxiety out there, if you can find someone, a lot of these traumas that are arising for us on the planet right now were formed in relationship. So they have to be dealt with to come out of them in relationship. So yoga, meditation, breastwork, those are solitary pursuits. And for me, they became a really great Band-Aid, a way of actually not feeling even more, right? Like I've got to do two or three hours of meditation so I won't feel anxious. Whereas actually slowly walking into that primal fear was the way of ironically creating a healing enough climate so that that anxiety can show me who she actually is. I need to stop talking because I'll talk forever on this. It's really been my whole whole life journey. No, this is, I am deeply listening, Katie. And this is, you're sharing some profound wisdom with us here. And I can just feel in myself. 
certain things have really clicked for me here. So thank you for that. And I think a lot of us are so afraid of truly feeling that we use whatever modalities we have, whatever practices, coping mechanisms to just not go into this state of feeling. And in a sense, then life just also passes us by because we're not only not feeling whatever we're so afraid of feeling, we're numbing ourselves to everything else as and, well. And what we are also, at a, it's not, oh, we're at a different level than other people, but mm -hmm. there is a certain vibrational quality that thinks. You mm -hmm. and I are sitting here with our hearts open. We're total strangers. And I know that you could be a friend. We're not in a bar just like drinking it up. Like that would be <laughs> fun, but it's not. Let me say it this way. And I think your, your listeners are going to benefit from this, I think. The self-help technology can be another beautiful way that we're running from ourselves. There's a spiritual materialism, right? If I can just get enough biohacking tools, if I can just get enough herbal supplements, if I can just do it, go to his, all do all these therapies, which I love them all. But the healing climate, in other words, the place where anxiety or depression have the chance to even begin to unravel starts from a place called the healing climate. The healing climate is a loving gaze that doesn't hold blame, shame, victimhood, martyrdom, all those things that we tend to come into this with. And the mantra, hear this, guys, the mantra of the healing climate, and I suck at this, by the way. I'm a baby. I'm learning this, but I'm just a good talker. But I'm willing to do it. I'm trying to do this every day. And when I do it, the results are magical. And the mantra of the healing climate is, you are not a problem to be solved. You're not a problematic person. And here's the other piece. And I'm in this right now, sister. The parts of me that I am super ashamed of, that I am even unconsciously doing my best to hide from everyone, including myself, those hold the exact key to the healing, to the anti-anxiety mm -hmm. medicine, to the actual self-confidence, to the actual freedom. It's actually in the very thing that I'm most afraid, that I find the most intolerable about myself. Right behind that is the medicine. Mm -mm -mm. That is beautiful, Katie. And thank you for sharing this mantra. I'm I'm big on tools. You yeah, know, think, things where people can also, that they can apply to their own lives. And do you have an example? So for those who may still not see this very clearly, can you talk, can you share an example of how the medicine is actually yes. behind what we fear most, loathe most? Every day I get to feel it in myself. Okay, so here's a good example. I don't want to pick the one I'm working with right now. Let me pick one I've grokked a little bit. All right. So all my life, I've wanted to be like many of us, loved, valuable. See, the, the book I wrote is called Glowworthy, wanting to feel worthy. And the feminine wants to be known and seen as light. Women especially. That's why we do our hair and put on our clothes and put on our makeup. We want to be seen as light. And there are men that want that too. Great. They're more in their feminine. All my life, I've wanted this thing 
And I really, now a lot of it's still unconscious. I'm not saying I'm fully done with this journey. And so I figured out as a little girl, all the ways to make myself successful, master's degrees, PhDs, all those things, right? And and now on top of it, I'm a Southern belle. So now you'd be pleasing, you'd be polite, you'd be especially nice to big old tall men. Don't rock the vote. And if you do, Christianity and my upbringing said, you're bad and you'll get punished. Okay. So when you grow up in that, you develop a certain way of identifying yourself. It's external, but it's also deeply internal. And then we can talk about past lives because then we can let go of all the blame of our culture and our families. So from that place, if I believe that those are the things that I must, I call it the golden girl, I have to be this golden girl, then I am going to be an enemy within myself to the parts of me that aren't golden to the parts of me that are egotistical, manipulative, greedy, fame and fortune seeking. We all have a little bit of narcissism, all of us, even though our culture wants to think that those are narcissists are out there and I'm over here like the good guy, right? And so we set up internally a structure of there are parts of me that are good and there are parts of me that are bad. Now I'm in a conversation with my beloved. And here's a great way people can use this practically later. You can use it inside yourself, but use it with your partner or your friend. When we enter into what might feel like a disagreement, is there a subtext? Is there an underlying structure that says one of us is going to leave this right and one of us is going to leave this wrong? That is the entire setup of your individual psyche. So it's playing out with your partner. But it actually has nothing to do with her or him. It's playing out in all of us. Just turn on the news. It's playing out as a projection in the world right now. There's the good guys and the bad guys. There's the right and the left. There's the this and then that. And you're on one of the teams. But that's actually playing out inside our internal psyche. So Katie's sitting here in the interview. It happens to me every day. And I'm like, Oh, I can feel a little bit of, ner- I didn't have any of this with you, by the way, but sometimes I'll feel a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of anxiety. That's bad. Yeah. That's what my mind is saying. That's bad. And so now I'm gripped against the gripping. Now I'm defended against my badness before I even talk to you. Mm. It sets up an internal situation of disharmony and warfare, but I'm doing it on myself. So now because I'm I'm conscious of this, but most of us are not conscious of it at all. So now I'm coming into an interview with you. You look like a freaking angel sitting on a planet, right? But inside of this didn't happen, but I'm saying this can, right? Now I'm inside myself with a feeling of badness. So I'm going to do everything I can to get you to see me as good. Oh, wow, Katie. And that's in your so wise word. <laughs> You have put basically also explained in your words how it all starts within ourselves. I've never looked at it in this way. It makes total sense, though. Yes, the war that we have going on inside of ourselves, we project into our relationships and especially in partnerships when you have things arise, discussions arise, you have disagreements. However, when You set up a situation for one to basically be wrong or bad and the other right. 
and goods. It's not a with each other anymore, which is so important for partnerships to be on the same team, to move together through whatever it is that you may want to resolve, change, evolve through. But when you get to that spot where it's me against you, which is basically reflecting of what's going on inside of me, my quote good parts against my quote bad parts. That's right. And of course, that all plays out in the bigger picture as well. We see it splashed all over the news media. We see it in our daily lives. So that's really something to sit with and to let simmer. And it's very subtle. So let me give another example for everyone. I was walking my dog the other day. I live out in the country, in wine country, Virginia. A dog, two, I have a little mountain doodle. She's 30 pounds and she's the most docile thing in the world, right? So she's my little innocent thing. By the way, we project our innocent selves on our pets. <laughs> Here I am walking with my dog and out of nowhere come these two huge dogs from afar and they attack my dog. Two big dogs on a little dog and then I have to reach down and grab her and then they start jumping on me. So super scary, right? Fight, flight, freeze, it's all going on, right? And that's a natural response to a legitimate attack. In my example, everyone, that's a legitimate attack. I would be a fool if I sat there and started doing breath work and mantras. That So it's to say, if you're in an abusive situation, if you're in a terrible job, if you're in a bad relationship, get out or figure it out, right? So there are legitimate situations where the appropriate response is fight, flight, freeze, these natural things in our nervous system. Okay, I do a good job. I was pretty proud of myself. Long story short, get out of the situation. The owners came out. They were in freeze. I've studied this so much. I could see that they were in freeze. They Because they didn't, I was yelling, like, get your dogs, right? Like, you can't have your dogs out off leash like this. They said nothing. So I go home and yes, you saw it. Now I start to spin. How dare they not have apologized? It was all their fault. I'm innocent. My dog's innocent. They are bad. They blah, blah, blah. And now I'm in warfare. Again, longer story short, I ended up calling the police because I felt like I needed to just make, I didn't want to press charges or anything, but their dogs attacked me and my dog. And I didn't want that to happen to a child, a small child. So I said to the police officer, and I live in a tiny town, there's like 60 people, right? I'm like, no, no pressing charges. Just go over and ask them what happened. And when the officer came back, he said what my higher self already knew. Oh, I was so mad at them. I'd gone into the battle. He came back over and he goes, they were heartbroken. Literally, he goes, they were in shock. They had never seen their dogs do this. And they were just in so upset. The woman, the wife was still crying. It was like two hours later. Oh. So it's, it's just an example to show us all. We rush so quick to make yeah. ourselves the good guy. And I could, I'm a good lawyer. Like I could build the case for you of like why we were innocent and why they were bad. And when I sat with it, I call it God. God said to me, this is not how I see any of you. I don't see them that way. And I don't see you that way. You're all my innocent creatures. Even the ones of you doing the most fucked up shit. And we can hold that while also not letting people push us around or abuse us. But we're talking about a higher level of mind 
where we start to be able to track the things in our life where we're setting up a situation where we're the victims or we're the innocent ones. And, and some people like to be the perpetrators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the situation they set up. They're equally fallacy. They're equally full of fallacy. How this relates to anxiety is it these situations where I'm the innocent one and I'm the good one and you're the bad one make us even more neurotic. This is why so many spiritual practitioners are even more neurotic and barely want to leave their houses. <laughs> it's like you bring up something, Katie, then. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> it's hard to hear, but it's true. We have to watch it. I include myself in that. Now we're the golden girls that we can't leave our house because our energy is so tender. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm preaching to myself, girl. <laughs> I do that a lot, preaching yeah. to myself. Preaching to ourselves. Yeah. So something that I love what you just shared, and thank you for sharing such a situation that could happen to any of us every day, whether you have a dog or not, but there are similar situations and where you find yourself in that place of battle. I love how you shared that basically God was with you and, and told you, I don't see any of you like this. You're all my innocent creatures. And of course, when we look deeper behind the curtain or behind the screen of the battle that's playing out in our brains, then we could actually see what's happening on the other side. In your particular case, the woman was crying. She was so in shock. A lot of your work focuses on heart-centered spirituality. And so this just really came up for me because it's so heart-centered, the way you just also relayed this, talked about this. Can you explain how a heart-centered spirituality is different from other forms of spirituality that people might be more familiar with, especially also you brought up, you know, there's some spiritual teachers, people that won't even leave their house anymore when they think of themselves as these very spiritual people. It seems removed from the heart-centered spirituality, though. Could you delve into that for us? I don't know about other people. I, I, the more I read and study and meet great teachers most of us are talking about the same thing. Then it gets perhaps utilized in a way. There's a teacher called Trungpa Chogyam Rinpoche, and he was a 1970s, 80s, hilarious, brilliant Buddhist, crazy wisdom teacher. I think slept with a bunch of students. They're pretty problematic, but his books are incredible. And he talks about spirit, a concept that I think he coined called spiritual materialism. And I think all of us, myself, all I've studied with great Tantra teachers, all of them were flawed people. Like I haven't met any really. Now I think my therapist might be the most enlightened person I know. And she's a surfer named Crystal that lives in Oahu. She's like drinking coffee on her porch and being like a totally normal woman. Heart-centered spirituality is that. It's that we're not waiting on something to descend from the sky, including a guru that's going to come and save us. Like heart spirit centered spirituality is us just getting super real and honest. And that is so easy to say and brutal to do. Heart centered spirituality is that there's a reason the bleeding heart of Christ is one of my favorite spiritual icon images. There's a Shiva practice called Shiva Rudra, and it's the Shiva that weeps for your suffering. The whole point of Buddhism, principle number one, life 
is, it is full of suffering. So actually, if we look into all of these deep-rooted traditions, including Sufism from Islam, all of them point to the bleeding heart of Christ. The Christ means, of course, the Buddha, the awakened one. And so when I say heart spiritual, heart central spirituality, can we all get together and admit how hard this is? Admit that we're struggling. Admit that Buddha was right. Life is suffering. And, and those of you who are young, I'm not trying to depress you. It's for liberation, but it just keeps getting a little bit harder as you approach more disease and more death. And as you see the ones you've loved and invested in have that, and as you watch your house start to crumble and your dogs start to get weak in the knees, this is the nature of reality. And living from a heart-centered place is that you're willing at all moments to be a little bit heartbroken. And it's through that broken crack of the heart that the light can flood in and you can begin to witness, experience, feel, see, and live from a part of you that is deathless, that does not suffer, that knows no age, that is timeless, limitless. That's the transcendent place. But the transcendence comes from being broken by life, by heart, by puppies and babies and partners. And for me, I'm single. Look at me. I adore men. I look like I'm like half Marilyn Monroe's DNA. And yet, singlehood has been a huge part of my life and my heart has to break for that longing unfulfilled. I mentioned mine. You have yours, right? All of our listeners, we have our longing unfulfilled. And through that crack of my longing unfulfilled is where God can fill me up, where the divine energy, you can call it, can actually reach me. It's in my weakness. It's in, and this is big for our community that you and I share. It's, and this brings tears to my eyes. It's the place where you didn't get the thing that you wanted to manifest. That's holy ground. That's holy ground. That's where you're held in the palm of something so far behind that flips the whole manifestation concept on its head. Thank you. Thank you that I didn't get it. Mm, thank you for sharing, Katie. So this holy ground, how do we be with on this holy ground, with this holy ground, and can we use it to be a place for growth, for something beautiful? Do we get to plant seeds? How do we do that and how do we nurture them? I love the way you said, do we get to be a place? Because that's actually what we're talking about. The definition of the word yogini is she who becomes a refuge for herself. And through becoming that place, that refuge, I become a refuge for everyone else. Mm. It's a state change. It's that my teacher says, you're with dignity and respect for yourself. And that dignity. And that respect holds all of you. The actual, I want to say this before we end, like the original title of my book was Holy. And they didn't want me to use it, I think, wisely, because they thought people would think it was a Christian book and not buy it. And 
I said, I am a Christian, but whatever. I'm like a Christian. That's what I call myself. I'm into Christ. And but holy, the meaning of the word holy is that you're able to hold 360 degrees of who you are. There's a false idea that the more you do spiritual practice, the better you're going to get, the nicer you're going to be, the more loving and lovey-dovey and bliss and light. And it is absolutely not what is happening. If someone tells you they're only love and light, run far away. <laughs> no, you, to actually be a refuge. And But it's ironic because the more you're willing to be a refuge for all the orphaned, broken, lost parts of yourself, the more you are love and light. The more you are not operating unconsciously from those wounds and you're able to actually respond in a way that's more holistic. So I think the number one thing we I have in the book, I have 15 practices that will give you a link to the students or the listeners can have them. They're totally for free. They're just for the world. It will give you guys a link. There are 15 practices for doing this. And one of the first things I say is just every day, just take the holy pause. Stop. It's simple. Many of my teachers have spoken of it in different ways, but you just stop. You put your hand on your heart and you just say to yourself, I'm here. I've got you. I can be with you here now in this. You say to your anxiety, welcome, beloved friend. And here's the trick. You're with it without becoming it. Mm. You're with your anger without becoming it. You're with your sadness without becoming it. You have to become bigger than it. And that's tricky. So there's another practice in the book, and it's call, I call it calling in the big guns. So yesterday I was working with a part of myself. I'll just share the word. And this was really hard <clears throat> to even admit. It's a gnarly one. I was with your listeners are probably like, we see it. Because the funny thing is the part of you that you think you're hiding is the thing everyone can see about you. So there's a part of me that I've been working on that's called desperate. Just mm -hmm. that feeling of being desperate. That the practice is really sometimes we need to call in an energy. I called it God before that's bigger than the thing. I have a practice in the book called Calling in the Big Guns. Some of you have a practice where you're connected to source, God, goddess, whatever you're working with. But if you're not, you can just pause and you let the heart be really humble. Opening the heart, softening literally physically the heart, literally bringing your awareness from your physical heart to the back of your spine at the level of the heart and behind you opens you into a portal. The front of our heart energetically is the conditional world of transaction and relationality. The back of our heart is the unconditional realm. It's also the realm of our ancestors. Mm. So I get my mind. It's, anybody off the street can do this, right? You just say, hey, imagine you're taking a highlighter and drawing it to the back of your heart. Can you feel that? And they're like, yeah, I feel that. I can do that. Mm -hmm. And go back behind you as far as you can imagine. And then that's the surrendered heart. And in that moment, become small humble. And you simply ask, please be with me. And you wait patiently for something to show up. I'm kinesthetic, so I feel it like a hug from God. 
Some of you may get an image. Some of you may get light, color. Some of you may hear it. Some of you may feel it, taste it. You'll feel that subtle awareness start to dawn. Breathwork and yoga are preliminary practices to be able to make us subtle enough in our perception to be able to feel spiritual energy. And then you now, I promise you, if you do this practice enough, and it is a practice, it's a muscle, you'll start to feel that you're not alone, that mm-hmm. you now can be with your anger, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, because there's something else there with you. Thank you for sharing this, Katie. And I think you just mentioned spiritual energy. So in order to actually be with that energy, we need to be able to receive it. And we live in a world that really values action and assertiveness. And in a lot of the uh, ancient traditions, the, the feminine is associated with receptivity. So how can we reclaim the power that actually lies in receptivity and become more open towards it? Because I'm pretty certain that a lot amongst the listeners may have a hard time with getting into that receptive space. And I count myself amongst them. I am not perfect with this. It's a yeah perpetual practice. Yeah. Remember, we're fish swimming in a sea that has told us, taught us, insinuated overtly and subconsciously that the way that we get our glow, our value, our worth is by what we do and what we look like for women. For men, it's a little bit more like what you do and how much money you earn and status. But women too, you named it perfectly. The feminine is about being. The feminine is about interconnection. Not me and not you, but the third entity called us. The relationship that happens when you and I sit together That's what the feminine's interested in. 100% aware of the, I'll call it the immature masculine knows that he, she has to earn, achieve, build skyscrapers, whether they're actual or psychological. We have to always be hustling and Americans are really susceptible to this mind virus. And then, of course, the ongoing need to beautify, change, alter our bodies to be loved and accepted. That's particularly strong within feminine culture, whether you're a man or a woman, but women really carry that. And it's a deep practice to pause. It's a radical revolutionary act to lay down on your bed, put a little eye pillow on, put on a meditation, do some breath work. But more importantly, don't do it. It has to come from an intention of, it's my intention to sit in in the empty cup that can breathe and know that whatever it is already given, it's already here. I am already that. I have no therapy to go to. I have no biohacking to do. I have no Ayurveda morning routine to do. There is I am whole and complete. That is the whole point of Buddhism, Hinduism, mysticism in all its its colors. The practices are merely methodologies to remove the dust that's preventing us from seeing the diamond that we already are. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just dust on the diamond. Okay, I sit down. That's a very different way of practice. Instead of 
I'm a big, hot mess of a woman. I am neurotic and anxious and full of this and that. And I need to do my practice so I can be good and be sane. And there's another one where women were scared we're crazy. Okay, I can do this thing that's going to make me sane, can make me whole. That's like the opposite way of starting the practice. When we start, we have a year-long thing that starts in January, and I'm happy to give anyone interested in your podcast a discount if anyone's listening, thinking. We have a whole year-long program for women because it takes a while to really steep yourself in this as a weekly. We meet every week. And what I tell the women in the beginning is you are going to learn so many things that are going to blow your mind. They're going to change your life. Your health is going to get better, your relationships, your sexuality, You're going to have all these witchy herbs and tools and tricks and mantras and energy practices and food program. You're going to get all of that. That's not the point. The point is to connect with the part of you that doesn't need any of that. And we have a really hard time with that. Like we want to get the grade. We want the syllabus. We want to do it right, including our spiritual life. When in fact, it's, it's a subtraction process rather than adding more to your life. It's taking away everything that's just preventing you from seeing the truth. Beautiful. Yes. And I can relate so much as I'm sure many of the individuals listening, we have been so conditioned to do, to prove our worthiness, to prove or earn to be loved. And it's very hard to untangle oneself from that, even within with ourselves. If we don't do the things that we set out to do, the routines, the sports, the meditation, the this, the that, And then at the end of the day, when you look at your to-do list and you feel like you haven't crossed off enough things, you are left feeling utterly unworthy and exhausted. And these moments where you just sit with yourself and feel the beauty of yourself, everything is good as it is, and you are so worthy, that's when you literally can, you feel so at peace and you feel something radiating from you. You feel yourself glow, glow worthy. It's a brilliant title, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, you said it really well. That's it. And Mm. then the funny thing is you realize this thing we were hustling like little hamsters on a wheel for a lot of our lives. It's like a big cosmic joke. When you taste the thing you just described really eloquently, you realize you've been running around looking for these little worms when you already are the thing that you're wanting, but we need help. But it's all well and good to say, oh, you're worthy of love, but I don't feel that way all the time. And we need each other. We need these practices. We need discipline. Discipline's a big thing, but only coming from that place of the healing environment, which is loving and curious and gentle and respectful and I'm not saying I do all of that perfectly all the time, and certainly I'm a flawed teacher and practitioner, but I'm very convinced that when you do your best to offer that space for yourself of gentleness and discipline, like a good parent, it's not just, oh, be gentle, lay on the couch and watch Netflix and eat hamburgers all day. Like You can't do that and expect results, but a certain quality of tenderness is the hallmark of knowing if you're actually practicing in a way that will serve you. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Arian. Am I saying it right, Arian? 
there. I have uh, friends that call me Ariane. I have friends yeah. that call me Ariana. I have Ariane. <laughs> so it's, if you say in German, it's Ariana. So the All closest right. to English would be Ariana. But... Okay. Ariana, I love it. Thank you. And Katie, for those who, um, I feel like I could talk with you for hours and there's so many topics that we haven't even touched upon yet. It's literally just having not even scratched, but blown the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> So I do hope we get to reconnect at another time in real life or on yeah, this podcast. I'd love that. I'd wonderful. Love that. And Tantra. And there's so many. I really feel my heart feels nourished. My brain is inspired. So I have a lot to sit with and uh, digest and dive deeper after we conclude this conversation. So deep gratitude for that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Mm, absolutely. It's a pleasure and it's a privilege and i would like to give our audience the opportunity to connect deeper with you of course they can read your latest book you've already had your previous books also a new york times bestseller i have no doubt that this book also at the time of the publishing of this podcast will be released but it's october 3rd yeah Denver. that's right october 3rd Glowworthy, and yeah our main thing we do is we have a school a year-long program for women theshaktischool.com. We focus on Ayurveda, but we have functional medicine doctors. We have healer women of so many different disciplines. So it really is our main thing that we're doing over here is this year-long program. And if people are interested in it, we'll give them a little juicy discount if, if they come through you, Ariana. And that's what we're doing. I also have, I'll send you the link of these 15 meditations. They can go there and get them for free and just practice them. That's really what it's all about. It's super challenging to talk about experiential life. And so we've got to go do it together. And so head over to that little page and practice with me. Excellent. And I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. And those who'd like to hear you speak more words of warmth and wisdom, you also have a beautiful podcast. I do. It is so nice over there. We have such beautiful I call it the place for smart plus heart. Uh, it's called Spirit Sessions. And yeah, free podcasts. Go check it out. Wonderful. Again, deep gratitude to you, Katie. I'm so glad to be connected with you now. This was really special conversation. I learned a lot and it resonated so much with me. Soul sister. My soul sister. Obvious soul sister. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a beautiful rest of your day. And thank you so much for joining us at the Superhumanize podcast. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.